2: everyone. Any direction that you look, north, south, east, west, any country that you name, Syria, Iran, Iraq, China, Russia, Ukraine, they all have seemingly one thing in common, which is anybody with a brain is pretty worried about what's happening there especially the United States involvement in what is happening there, or in some cases, depending on your perspective, a lack of involvement. So we have assembled a diverse panel of three experts who know American policy, who know the Middle East a little bit, who know where the rubber meets the road in terms of foreign policy as we take a tour around the world to some of the global hotspots and actually try to maybe even get some solutions as to how, that we, how we can solve some of these problems. Let me welcome a longtime public servant, a Marine veteran of the first Persian Gulf War and someone that was a civilian contractor in the most recent wars in the Middle East, my friend Joseph Ween. Hello, Joe.
0: Good morning, Frank. How are you?
2: Uh, now, were you in Iraq during the, uh, while you were a civilian contractor as well?
0: Yes, and sp- I spent the majority of my time in Iraq. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Uh, also,
2: very pleased to welcome back the uh, former British ambassador to both Bahrain and Syria, and the co-chairman of the British Syrian Society, Ambassador Peter Ford. Ambassador, it's Great to have you back, sir.
1: Thank you very much for having me, uh, Frank.
2: And, and Ambassador, remind folks, if, they're, if they haven't heard our previous conversations, what is the British Syrian Society?
1: Well, the situation in Syria is, at the moment is that they're, they're reeling from the recent earthquake. And this comes on top of uh, the Terrible problems they having coming out of the 10 year no, civil that, that group, the group that
2: you're co chairman of, the British Syrian Society, oh, tell folks yeah. what that yeah.
1: is. Well, to be, to be accurate, I um, left that uh, some um, months ago because there's nothing that the group is allowed to do in this uh, wonderful free country of mine. We're not allowed to organize meetings, protests, uh, hobby. And therefore, uh, I'm no longer involved with that.
2: There you go. You can't say my uh, record keeping isn't, isn't up I'll to date. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. And very pleased to welcome Alan Tonelson, a trade expert, the founder of Reality Check. It's one of the go-to websites I check every day. It's a blog that covers economics, national security, technology, th- the areas where they intersect, and more. He's also a former advisor on trade issues to both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Alan, it's great to talk with you again as well.
3: Great to be back, Frank, and thanks for having me on.
2: Absolutely, and uh, good luck to your New York Yankees when the uh, season begins uh, later this week, Alan. Three-fifths
3: of the starting (laughs) rotation hurt. I love it. (laughs) They're going to need the luck. That's why I said that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right,
2: let me begin with the Syria situation. Uh, There's no question that this conflict in Syria has escalated significantly following the attack uh, that killed a U.S. contractor. The uh, Iran-backed militias launched, Launched a volley of rocket and drone attacks against coalition bases uh, after American reprisals for a drone attack that killed a U.S. contractor and injured six other Americans. John Kirby, the spokesman for the Pentagon, was on Face the Nation Sunday talking about the situation on Sunday. This is
4: what he said We have acted with U.S. troops under fire. First of all, condolences. On our condolences to the family of the U.S. contractor, U.S. citizen who was killed. It's devastating news that no family uh, wants to ever get. Uh, and we certainly grieve with them. Uh, and we're obviously uh, hoping for a speedy recovery for those who are still suffering from the wounds. But uh, this was a this was a serious attack by these militant groups. And the president retaliated swiftly and boldly, significantly uh, to deal with that. Um, you're right. There were some follow up response at least from three. at least three from uh, these militant groups. Um, uh, not a lot a of damage caused although the one uh, one service member w- was injured so uh, we're going to see where this goes but the president in ottawa made it very clear uh, that we're going to always act to defend our troops and our facilities and here's what's not going to change margaret The mission in ISIS is not going to change. We have under 1,000 troops in Syria that are going after that network, which is, while greatly diminished, still viable uh, and still critical. So we're going to stay at that task.
2: So let's talk about the geopolitical implications here. So the violence that erupted in Syria really does highlight the risk and the potential for escalation at a time when both Washington and Tehran remain significantly at odds. Ambassador Ford, since Syria is very much in your uh, ballywick. Let me begin with you. Give me your take on what we're seeing in terms of Syria right now.
1: Well, you have to ask, what do those US, why are those U.S. troops being put in danger? Uh, the, the official line says that they're there to uh, stop uh, ISIS. Well, ISIS was stopped a couple of years ago. Didn't anybody notice? That is baloney. That is just a cover story because Biden doesn't want to appear weak by withdrawing the forces. So, essentially, those forces are stuck there, sitting ducks for Iran or whoever, simply because Biden is afraid of losing face. Their presence is not helping U.S. security. On the contrary, they are uh, virtual hostages there. If uh, Israel, for example, wants to beat up on Iran, or the U.S. wants to beat up on Iran, those soldiers are going to get it in the neck. They are uh, hostages. Um, In America's own interest, they should be withdrawn pronto.
2: Uh, Joe, since you were a civilian contractor and we're talking about the death of an American civilian contractor which, uh, which prompted this latest escalation, give me your take on the geopolitical implications of what we're watching in terms of this violence in Syria, both sides.
0: Well, I think, Frank, uh, it is a significant uh, event. Uh, Contractor, I don't know what the role exactly was. Was it a paramilitary role or a support role? However, a U.S. citizen was attacked. U.S. bases were attacked, whether we should be there or not. Like I used to say in Iraq, whether we should be there or not, we're there, right? So I think this is definitely a flex by Iran. I think that you know uh, significant things that just took place in the region is Saudi Arabia and Iran just – restored their diplomatic ties, which might f- make them feel emboldened if that's the right word. So uh, it's definitely a flex. you know, we've reintroduced ourselves into Iraq, which Iran was trying to basically make a puppet state for them. Uh, I, I definitely uh, this could lead, I think just like we're kind of in a proxy war into Ukraine with Russia, through these, which we saw once again in the war in, te- in Iraq, once again, we see a proxy war developing between these Iranian-backed militias and the Iranian Kuds Force with them trying to show you, hey, we can hit you at any time. Hey, we have a prez, prez presence here. We're not going to allow you know the United States to creep in here and have another state like Iraq so close to
3: us.
2: Alan, uh, Alan Tonelson, give me your take on the geopolitical implications of uh, this latest violence in Syria.
3: Frank, I think that this U.S. presence in Syria, this ongoing U.S. presence in Syria, which which clearly is not big enough to accomplish its mission of containing ISIS, but it's certainly big enough um, uh, to take casualties, Um is really a great example of the United States once again looking to foreign policy to solve a problem that is best handled through our own domestic policy. And what I mean by that is that we have to ask ourselves, why are we worried about ISIS or similar groups reviving in the first place. We're worried that they might reach the point once again where they can launch some kind of a 9-11 style attack on this country. If we're really worried about jihadist terrorism, we would recognize that the best way to deal with it is not keeping or sending more US forces into the Middle East to chase down every single jihadist radical group that might spring up in that terminally dysfunctional region. And that's why they will keep springing up, but rather secure our own border, get serious about making sure that we can keep these folks out of this country. And that, of course, is one objective that we have miserably failed to meet since 9-11, frankly, with the partial exception of the Trump years.
2: The um, So let's talk about that issue, uh, since both Ambassador Ford and uh, Alan uh, referenced the role of the U.S. military in Syria right now. Joe, since you actually served in the Middle East, in your opinion, there was recently a congressional resolution put forward by Matt Gates, a conservative Republican. And this was one of those rare resolutions. It was defeated to withdraw troops from Syria. But it was one of those rare resolutions where you saw the politicians on the far right, like the Freedom Caucus, folks and matt gates vote with politicians on the far left like the squad at this point given where we are as a country do you think that we still need troops
0: in syria right now so frank i can only comment on it from an open source i haven't spoke I, I, uh, a few years ago i had a bunch of friends in special forces that were in iraq uh, uh, i mean in syria and iraq um so yeah it, it, it's difficult once we created the vacuum by going there, right, and I really think it was a big misstep for us to get involved in the war or actually start the war in Syria. I have uh, a firm belief in information that I've come across. You know, we did stoke the flames there. We did, we did support certain groups there. Is 1,000 troops enough to offset the balance of ISIS? Um, probably not. Are we spinning our wheels there? Possibly. But if we do have a withdrawal, are we going to open ourselves up to the same situation we had in Iraq when we couldn't uh, come to an agreement with the government? We pulled all the true, true troops out. You know, Iran came in, took over, set up a government. Um, it's difficult. I As a guy who's been on the ground, should we bring our, our troops home? Yes. Is a thousand troops enough? I don't know what their mission is. It's difficult for me to say in one sense, yes, I want them home, right? Uh, uh, Having seen war firsthand for many years of my life, I I think it should be the last thing we do. But on the other side of the coin, once we're there, we're there. And how do you pull out without creating a vacuum?
2: Alan Tonelson, uh, the answer to the question, do we still need troops in Syria? It sounds like you're a resounding no. Alan, I got gotcha. you.
3: Joe, okay. There you uh, go. Yes, yes. I do think that Joe has articulated uh, the, the kind of very specific dilemma that we face right now, because we have made made this commitment, and withdrawing from these kinds of uh, uh, policies um, is certainly not cost free, and. At the same time, I really do think that we have to ask ourselves again, why are we interested in this part of the world to begin with, and the main interest now because we know that we can become energy independent once again whenever we choose if we if we would only turn this country's oil spigots back on, um, we no longer need the oil we still need to be concerned about jihadist terrorism, but again, the best way to handle this is not by chasing these groups around the Middle East endlessly, and I would argue fruitlessly. The best way is to secure this country's borders, but clearly we're not there yet, so there's got to be some transition period. But that goal of ultimately dealing with global terrorism, by seeking a goal that 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 is actually feasible that is controlling our own borders versus seeking a goal that's not feasible, that is stabilizing. Again, what I would insist is this terminally dysfunctional region, that's got to be at the forefront of U.S. leaders' minds right now, and it's not right now.
2: Ambassador Ford, um, I I think a lot of people, at least in this conversation, recognize the desire to remove American troops from Syria, but the American public, they saw what happened with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which would be difficult to describe as having gone well. They see what happened when American troops left Iraq and ISIS was able to really gain a foothold in in that country and become a big problem for the United States and others. And they might be a little gun shy about withdrawing troops from anywhere in the Middle East. What would you say to somebody uh, listening to this conversation right now that thinks it's probably better to err on the side of keeping them there than
1: withdrawing them? They should definitely be withdrawn let 's be clear. the numbers are lo- low here, fewer than one thousand you 're not going to try and tell me that fewer than one thousand u s troops are able are going to make a huge difference to the security of an area the size of texas that 's where they are in North uh, East Syria, and they are uh, uh, they 're they're helping an an army of about twenty thousand mainly Kurdish militia forces, all that would happen if the US, those several hundred US forces were taken out of harm's way would be the Kurds would come to an arrangement with Assad, and between them they would reestablish security in that God-forsaken God forsaken part of Syria. Let's remember, this is Syria, <laughs> we're not talking about Kansas. This is another country. The U.S. has no right in international law to be there at all. They had an excuse when they were fighting ISIS, but that's long gone. The, the, the Syrian government itself, uh, Assad, they are tougher on ISIS than we are. Believe me, you don't mess with with those guys. Uh, the best thing from our own point of view would be to let Assad deal with the tar baby of the remnants of, uh, of ISIS and take those troops out of harm's way. They're just protecting Biden's reputation.
2: That was my next question, is that uh, the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL, whatever their uh, their name these days uh, is, depending on who's calling it to them, uh, they're certainly Assad's enemy as well. And we've seen the United States uh, partner when its circumstances were beneficial to the United States with all sorts of varieties of bad actors. Alan, is there any scenario in which the United States would actually consider partnering with Assad to rid Syria of the remnants of the Islamic State.
3: I think that some kind of an explicit partnership is unfortunately out of the question right now, precisely because the U.S. foreign policy establishment, including President Biden, has spent so much time and so much energy vilifying Assad. Um, I can conceive of circumstances by which we we do take U.S. troops out and work with him in some clandestine way. But I would like to also make one point about U.S. domestic politics, and that is I don't see any evidence whatever that President Biden was really hurt at all in the long run by the Afghanistan withdrawal, however botched the execution was, because I look at the November 2022 off-year election results, and and I see that Democrats did much better than folks expected and that Afghanistan played almost no role in those results whatever. And if the withdrawal from Syria is completed quickly that is long before election 2024 rolls around i don't expect president biden will pay any significant political price either
2: Ambassador Ford, uh, the Islamic State, they're clearly, as you stated, they're Assad's enemy as well. Is there any scenario in which it would be wise for the United States military to actually partner with Assad, who's been called a war criminal, who's been called a butcher and the son of a butcher, and actually work together to rid the region of whatever's left of ISIS? Uh, There's
1: just one way that cooperation would work, and that is for the U.S. troops to be removed and to allow the Syrian uh, official army forces to go in there. The U.S. forces are preventing Assad from mopping up the remnants of ISIS. It's unbelievable. They are preventing the mopping up of ISIS. Just simply removing them would allow the Assad government, supported no doubt by Russia and the Iranians, to clear out the remnants of of ISIS. Um, The previous speaker made an interesting point about uh, Afghanistan, Uh, absolutely correct, I'm sure. And the actual outcome from Afghanistan hasn't been bad at all, all those dire forecasts about how Afghanistan, we were leaving a vacuum, you always hear that argument, we're going to leave a vacuum and it's going to be terrible, and there's going to be terrorists. Well, it hasn't happened, as the real experts predicted. It hasn't happened, and it was a good move to get out of Afghanistan. But there's another geopolitical factor, and that is that leaving Syria would look like a win for Iran and Mm. Russia. Mm. Ah, Now, that is awkward, the way it, it could be presented by Biden's enemies. Joe, let me give you the last
2: word since you've spent a lot of time in Afghanistan on the question of uh, of Syria and rooting out terrorists there. I mean, if there is a withdrawal of American troops, it, I think a lot of people are concerned that that is basically sentencing our Kurdish allies in Syria to uh, death at the hands of Assad. Uh, any any reaction to what either Allen or Ambassador Ford said on the Afghanistan front and and two? Um, what would a post-U.S. occupied Syria look like?
0: Uh, Well, I agree and disagree on a lot of their points. I agree more. I think that a vacuum is a real thing, right? And – but when you look at it, Frank, in the early days of the war on terror, we did partner with Iran actually on the uh, Taliban. They had a lot of intel and the president – I can't think of his name uh, who was there at the time – he shared a lot of that with us. We partnered with the Syrians uh in the war war on terror. Was there a Shia Sunni re- reason behind that? Yes, right? Taliban, Al Qaeda, predominantly I'm only a Sunni group. They're predominantly a Shia, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Iran. So we can do that. I agree with the ambassador. I think we can embed our special forces teams there to guide the Kurds and help the Kurds and actually help Assad out, right? We have a common enemy and we should attack them. Do we need a presence there? And would it hurt Biden? I don't think think so, right? Because whoever's going to vote for him isn't going to care if we have troops there or not. Like when you look at his far left base – are they going to care that he's ending another war? Yeah, I mean,
2: my view is right? that and, anybody that's voting for him is voting yeah, for him because the he's long not Donald term, Trump. And I think
0: the long term, like we did in Somalia with the pirates, which we could talk about at another time. Look, we when you go into these places and start wars, that becomes a breeding ground for the Islamists, mm. right, the radicals. So I think there's – we have to uh, really look at a long-term str- strategy to make these groups less appealing – Less financially beneficial for someone to become a jihadist, to make a situation on the ground better so they don't gravitate towards these groups. Um, I definitely think that we should continue our hunt for them. Do we need to have thousands of troops deployed there? No, I don't think we do. All
2: right. um, When we return, we're going to continue with Ambassador Peter Ford, Alan Tonnelson of Reality Check, and uh, Marine veteran Joseph Wien. We're going to talk Iran. We're going to talk Russia. We're going to talk China. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
0: This is The
2: Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour by the former British ambassador to both Bahrain and Syria, Peter Ford, uh, by Alan Tonelson, uh, founder of Reality Check, a terrific blog uh, writing about a lot of the political and public policy issues that you talk about every day, and uh, Joseph Ween, a longtime public servant, Marine veteran, and a former civilian contractor in the Middle East all right uh, a lot of people have been discussing Iran we see this um, normalization this new normalization of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia there's also a great deal of speculation that they're pursuing nuclear weapons a lot of people are saying that iran 's truce with Saudi Arabia is healing a major rift in that country but iran 's economy is still totally in the tank which has Iran looking for a lot of answers as the population is not at all happy. Uh, let's talk about this Iran-Saudi Arabia alliance first. Ambassador Ford, uh, you you have the most diplomatic experience, I'm assuming, among us. Has the U.S. role as a global peacemaker been usurped by China, given China's role in mediating this Iran-Saudi Arabia normalization? Well,
1: what we've seen with the Ukraine conflict is how what they call Call the Global South, that is, most of the world except uh, Europe and America, the Global South has been driven together because they've all suffered from Western sanctions on Russia. They, they've caught more of the, the brunt uh, than, than the US uh, has, and so they're, they're coming together. They, they have a common interest in trying to make peace, not war, in Ukraine.
2: Uh, Alan, uh, what do you think this uh, Iran-Saudi situation? You know, if you look at the situation uh, objectively, as Joe alluded to, uh, there are some areas where the United States and Iran have uh, natural things in common. Both of us are sworn enemies of ISIS. Both of us have a vested interest in uh, keeping this government in Iraq, which is an ally of both Iran and the United States, afloat. What do you think about uh, where things are headed when it comes to Iran?
3: Well, first of all, my um, strong sense right now um, is that the U.S. has really very few genuinely, if any, genuinely vital interests left in the Middle East. Like I said before, if we're worried about ISIS or other jihadist groups, we should secure our own border. Um, We no longer have to worry nearly as much about access to Persian Gulf oil, as we had, because we we've discovered we have so much energy in this country itself. Um, I'm also pretty skeptical, despite this this quite noteworthy uh, Saudi-Iranian detente that we've seen in the last few weeks. I'm really kind of skeptical that that either it's going to last very long, or even if it does last very long, it's going to amount to very much, because those two are really natural rivals, and there is there remain deep theological disputes between them. And if we're worried that one or the other might become some kind of a regional hemisphere hegemon, I think we can be pretty certain that the other one is not going to stand for that.
2: Uh, Joe, uh, your thoughts on where things are headed when it comes to Iran?
0: Yeah, I would uh, agree with uh, both, both of the comments that were just made. I think the significant thing there is China did make the deal uh, where in – you look at Trump, he was making deals between the Israelis and A- Arab states. Now China comes in as the ref- referee, significant – And, you know, we underestimate Iran. They're very smart. They're an ancient society. You know, I have firsthand accounts Mm -hmm. of folks that live there and high ranking members of their government. I think this could be a ploy by Iran, right? Saudi Arabia is their biggest threat in the region. So why not make peace with them for now and focus on the threat uh, and get into a proxy war with the United States? For some reason, I don't understand the policy with Iran. Right, everyone seems to push them off. They're not important. They're not strong. Look at their Kud's force guys are very strong. Their military is very strong. Their economy is bad. So it's significant. It's significant that arch enemies divided on religion are coming together and, and making and on a lot of political and on a lot of way. political things uh, are all coming together as not necessarily. An ally, but having detente, which allows Iran to focus on other things.
2: You know, the a lot of people are concerned that Iran is seeking nuclear weapons. They've always maintained that they're not seeking nuclear weapons. And I, I guess the question that I would have is why do they need they maintain their nuclear energy program is peaceful And my question, I guess, would be why do they need nuclear power when they're such an oil rich country? I think uh, that's a little uh, it's a little uh,
0: it defies any sort of logic. You believe Iran is seeking uh, nuclear weapons? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent, Frank. You talk to anybody in the intelligence community, anybody has any idea about this. I'll tell you what they would agree with us. And they're bringing let's say they're they're doing it saying we want a program to provide power, cheap power throughout the United States, clean uh, throughout the United States, you know, in Iran, for them to make the jump to 90 percent to uh, create a weapon is snap. Uh, uh, Alan, what, what's your take
2: on Iran, nuclear power, nuclear weapons? How big of a concern is this for the United States in the world?
3: Well, I certainly agree that they are seeking nuclear weapons. And if they weren't motivated enough by what happened to former Libyan dictator Gaddafi, um, who, of course, didn't have them and and got himself overthrown by a U.S.-backed military coalition, he... Um, the Iranian leaders would certainly be looking at Ukraine over the last year, which gave up its own nuclear weapons in the early 1990s. Um, So there's no question that the Iranian leadership sees acquiring nuclear weapons as its ultimate security guarantee against any move that the United States or U.S. allies in the Middle East might take uh, to overthrow it. Um, But again, I... I can't get myself to be overly concerned nowadays with the Iranian acquisition of such weapons. When we needed the oil, that that would be a genuinely deep concern. We no longer need it. I, I certainly am concerned about the security implications for Israel, but I think the Israelis can take care – of themselves with enough U.S. military aid, which shows no signs of stopping, precisely because Israel's got its own nuclear force, which is which will be more than enough to deter whatever Iran develops.
2: Uh, Ambassador, y- your take on everything that we just said regarding Iran, nuclear energy, etc. Uh, I
1: agree absolutely with the last uh, speaker, um, the Iranians uh, are, will also be looking at North Korea. Look what happened there. A few years ago, we were all dreadfully worried about North Korea. All they were developing nuclear. Uh, The Donald had the right idea to more or less acquiesce. He didn't have much choice anyway, but he acquiesced with grace. Uh, And North Korea has gone virtually quiet. We've more or less stopped worrying about North Korea. So in the same way, we should stop worrying so much about Iran going nuclear. Israel has a balancing nuclear deterrent for sure. Uh, The Iranians are are not suicidal, so we should just stop worrying about it.
2: All right, Um, in terms of uh, Russia, well, actually, before we leave the Middle East, uh, this month marks the uh, 20th anniversary of the (laughs) Iraq War. And uh, I think the conventional wisdom in many corners of the world was that uh, this was a mistake through the prism of hindsight. Obviously, we don't get to make decisions about war through the prism of of hindsight. Ambassador, I'll begin with you. Knowing what we know now, was it a mistake to invade Iraq when the United States did 20 years ago?
1: Uh, totally. And some of us foresaw it at, at, at the time. They can't say it wasn't foreseen. It it, it, it was. Um it's been a total disaster. It opened the door to Iran in uh, Iraq. Previously, Saddam was, was keeping uh, the Iranians at, at bay. Um, it opened the door to uh, the, the, the emergence of uh, ISIS. That, that, that was the worst but foreseeable outcome when you create a uh, anarchy in a, in a heavily armed country. Uh, And it's been a disaster, let's not forget, for the people of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of whom were killed. And all those thousands of U.S. forces who became casualties, it was a total disaster from beginning to end. And they haven't learned the, the right lessons. This is the thing. They're not learning the lessons that you don't wade into a country and wage war and create mayhem and chaos. You do it at your own peril. But this is what they're they're doing in in Syria and by proxy in Iraq. All they learned was, A, to to use more proxies, yeah? Uh, Don't put so many boots on the ground. And B, to do a better job of hoodwinking the public. More information warfare directed against our own people.
2: Uh, Joe, your your take on the biggest lesson learned twenty years later over the American experience in Iraq? What do you think?
0: Yeah, Frank, uh, having spent just about three years, three and a half years on the ground in Iraq uh, before the war, we all anybody that knew anything about the region knew the issues that were going to come 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 up. Iraq, I believe, is more tribal and segmented than Afghanistan in many ways. So, yeah, it was a mistake. Um, don't go into wars that you don't need to be, be in. If you read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, he very clearly states this, and that book is thousands upon thousands of years old. Um, definitely do not go in if it's not of a vital strategic importance. Uh, taking out Saddam, listen, maniac, genocidal mur- mur- murderer, without a doubt. But did we need to go in and upset the balance of pa- power and the ambassador hit it right Even then, Iran was still the um, state sponsor of Mm -hmm. terrorism, was the geopolitical force that we were really against there – big mistake.
2: Alan, 20 years after Iraq, um, the the very same pundits that advocated for escalation in Iraq are now on TV pontificating. A lot of the same policymakers that were so enthusiastic about the war in in Iraq are uh, very enthusiastic about uh, involving America in other global conflicts these days. Uh, I mean, should the folks that led us to war 20 years ago, have any sort of credibility
3: these days? Frank. At the same time, even though I remain broadly non-interventionist when it comes to most foreign policy questions, I'm I'm Frank. I'm still wrestling with this, and the reason is that back in the early two thousands, I do believe that. Securing access to Persian Gulf oil was a vital U.S. interest. And unfortunately, I think that this country found itself in a position where it had few good choices. We do have to keep in mind that Saddam Hussein had used weapons of mass destruction, principally chemical weapons, twice during the at, – well, at, 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 at least in two conflicts during the 1980s against the – Iraqi Kurds and also against Iran we have to recognize that he'd been seeking nuclear weapons for decades and that only the Israeli led strike on that Osirak nuclear reactor slowed him down and I I really do think that the acquisition of that regime of nuclear weapons at a time when this country really did need that Persian gold foil would have been a completely unacceptable uh, um, uh, um, outcome. And unfortunately, We didn't plan well for the aftermath because there was really no time. And that's why I say we had few good choices. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And um, uh, let me, speaking of nuclear weapons, the news came out yesterday that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, announced that he's moving uh, some of his nuclear arsenal to uh, Belarus. It's uh, very clear that this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict shows no sign of abating. So far, the United States has uh, Appropriated in the order of about a hundred billion dollars to the Ukrainians so far, either in terms of direct aid or in terms of uh, weapons aid and uh, it seems like the United States role in this conflict on the Ukrainian end of things appears to be uh, escalating. Ambassador Ford, how do you see the situation in Ukraine right now? Where do you see it going? Uh, what's the best case scenario the worst case scenario from where you're standing?
1: Uh, well, it looks like uh, the U.S. is ready to fight to the last Ukrainian. That's how it looks like from uh, from from Europe. Uh, the, U- the U.S. appears to be opposed to anybody who's tries to mediate, like the Chinese, very recently. Um, determined to keep stoking the fires of war by sending ever more advanced uh, weapons. Um, and uh, conducting essentially a proxy war aimed at weakening Russia, all this at the expense of, of Ukraine and the, the wider Europe. Um, frankly, the best thing from everybody's point of view, including the U.S., would be to uh, cut our losses, uh, encourage the Ukrainians to make peace on the best possible uh, terms, so have to compromise, And in the end in the end, they're gonna to have to compromise. They, they they could have had a good deal a year ago. Now that deal's gone away. Uh if they fight on, it will just extend into a World War One like stalemate and in the end they'll end up everybody ends up losers.
2: Alan, uh, we heard from the former Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali mm-hmm. Bennett, that he was in touch with both Zelensky and Putin, and he was of the opinion that both sides were open to a peaceful, negotiated settlement uh, to end the conflict. But uh, according to Bennett, he, the United States helps torpedo those uh, attempted negotiations. Do you see any scenario uh, for a, a peaceful end to this anytime soon, if, and if not, not, what's the alternative? Where are we going?
3: Well, I don't see any scenario to a peaceful end anytime soon, precisely because President Biden is so committed to this utterly reckless course of as ambassador of, uh, Ford, very astutely put, it's fighting to the last Ukrainian. And in my view, there is no question that THIS COUNTRY'S UKRAINE POLICY IS THE HEIGHT OF FOREIGN POLICY RECKLESSNESS. WE ARE COURTING THE RISK OF NUCLEAR WAR. WE ARE EXPOSING THE U.S. HOMELAND to nuclear attack by Russia on behalf of a country that we have never viewed as a vital U.S. national security interest, and that we still don't view as a vital U.S. national security interest, as evidenced by the fact that we still refuse to admit Ukraine into NATO. If we viewed Ukraine as vital, we would have led it into NATO by now. We haven't, and to my mind, you never court any nuclear risk on behalf of an objective that's not vital because courting nuclear risk means, again, exposing your country to nuclear attack, which, by the way, would be a thousand times worse, a gazillion times worse than was
2: 9-11. Uh, Joe, the Russia-Ukraine situation, how do you see it?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I agree, Frank. Look, I think that there's two reasons why it benefits the Biden administration – in a way to keep it going, which I do not agree with the way it went. Um, but one, if you keep the war on, it, Russia cannot rebuild. Russia cannot get strong. Russia cannot divert source, uh, a lot of resources to Iran and Syria. So the longer we keep the war going on, pro- proxy or otherwise, it weakens the Ru- Russians. They can't rebuild. So now with Russia pretty much out as a power, a military power, we only have to contend with China, China, China. China is going to be the military threat of, of the few future. So I think it benefits us in that way. When I say benefits us, I don't really mean benefits us. That's their plan. And number two is mm. abstractly. If we were not spending all this cash on bullets, bombs, and beans sending to the mm. Ukraine, there's no doubt in my mind because you look at the stock of the companies prior to the war that supply a lot of these things and now during the war, I think that is what really stopped us from going into a recession.
2: Uh, all right, we're going to talk about China with uh, Alan and Joe in a moment. Uh, I think the ambassador has to uh, uh, jump off. Ambassador, thanks for the time this hour. We'll talk again soon. Actually, I
1: actually, actually, Frank, I uh, I can stay. Okay, if, great, if good.
2: Sure. We'll uh, we'll we'll keep you if you're willing. All right, we'll talk China with Ambassador Peter Ford, Joseph Ween, and Alan tunnelson Straight ahead.
1: The other side of midnight. midnight. Other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano joined for the hour by Ambassador Peter Ford, Joseph Wien, and Annal and Alan Tonnelson. The problem when discussing China is that there's so many different aspects of it to discuss. You have uh, China spending $240 billion bailing out Belt and Road countries. You have uh, fears over Taiwan and what America should do in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. You still have a lot of lingering hard feelings, to put it mildly, over the COVID situation. There's economic concerns. There's geopolitical concerns. And in the halls of Congress right now, there's a strong debate about whether to ban one of the most popular social media apps in the country, TikTok. And by the way, it turns out that three of the 10 most popular apps that people are downloading in this country in the United States are Chinese. It's not just TikTok. There's two others that are right up there. Uh, Joe, let me begin with the TikTok situation. There's uh, some people that say that uh, this is just uh, China phobia banning, uh, banning TikTok. Where do you come down on the nature uh, on a TikTok ban specifically and on U.S.-China relations more broadly?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, Frank, it's a, a complicated thing. Like I said, China is the biggest threat to the United States right now. Once again, a Chinese person, Sun Tzu, the art of war, the greatest general, wins the battle without firing a shot. Modern warfare, warfare is always going gonna, to gonna change. And I'm going to quote somebody, you know, World War II didn't look like World War I. Korea didn't look like Vietnam.
2: Persian right, you're Gulf, always so fighting
0: on, so the Chinese are very smart, and we're in an asymmetrical war, a propaganda war with them, and they've infiltrated the United States through that. If you ever read deep into the terms of use, when you log on to TikTok, which nobody reads, which South Park made a parody right, on right. about uh, you know, the iPhones, it is absolutely a spying tool. It is absolutely a psychological warfare tool. They get to look in everything, download things onto your phone. If you send me a TikTok, they could look at my phone, grab my data, all of that. If you look at TikTok now, they control the algorithm in the United States. What do you have? Tide pod challenge, mm. cinnamon challenge. Um, I don't want to use a term for certain girls or guys in Insta fame model, whatever mm. terms they use for that. People acting promiscuous and drunk and doing stupid things and kids being dumb. That's what you see a lot in the UK and you see in the United States Just people making fools of themselves or maybe a good video here or there. Look at the TikTok in China. It's Chinese kids excelling in math, playing chess, engineering feats, Chinese society being successful and educated, right? So what are they doing? Hey, eat Tide Pods here. I mean, we have kids eating soap as a cha- cha- challenge, but you look at the kids in China, it's showing them excelling right, at Right, educational uh, yes. material. Alan Tonelson, uh, whether
2: it's uh, TikTok, Taiwan, Tiananmen, uh, how, what's your take on all the teas in China?
3: Well, regarding TikTok, China is a hostile dictatorship that's been challenging truly vital national security interests, and that is the U.S.'s access to Taiwan's world-leading semiconductor manufacturing technology. And like every entity that is based in China, TikTok is an arm in actuality or potentially of the Chinese government, as Joseph just pointed out. It's clearly spreading Chinese propaganda, and those facts totally override whatever First Amendment concerns folks have expressed in opposition to banning TikTok. It should be kicked out of this country immediately.
2: Ambassador Ford, uh, a lot of Americans are uh, fearful that China could take advantage of what's happening with Ukraine and Russia now and use this as an opportunity to move forward with a Taiwanese invasion. Is that a legitimate concern? And what should the United States reaction be if that were to come to pass?
1: Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of hysteria about over China. It's pure hysteria to be worrying about. Um, stupid thing! Like you might have be been worried. Worry about Chinese uh, monopoly, uh, near monopoly uh, over vital uh, lithium for lithium batteries. We're all supposed to go electric with our cars, like when at 2030, whenever. Uh, that that's something that you, you, the the strategy hawks should be worrying about, but aren't. And they always forget that China's number one preoccupation is prosperity. Not war. Uh, they spend about one sixth, one sixth of what the US spends on on defense. Their their posture is defensive, especially after you, Ukraine. They're not going to wade into Taiwan. And even if they did, we ourselves, we ourselves admit that Taiwan is part of China. Uh, we should. But bottom line, China wants trade. So just as we should never have worried about access to the Middle East, what what was the Middle East going to do? Drink it? No, they had to sell it. Uh, This is the bottom line, and it's the same with all strategic commodities.
2: Uh, Joe, uh, China, Taiwan, uh, is this a legitimate concern, and what should the United States' reaction be if there's an invasion?
0: Well, dude, you know, I, I agree. I got to say partially with the ambassador, but I also dis- disagree with part of what he said. With all due respect, because, you know, when you look at warfare, dude, it's just not one dimension m- m- anymore. It's multidimensional. Yes, the lithium all being processed there and the batteries and all that stuff. Yes, he's 100 percent right, and we missed the boat on that. But part of warfare is propaganda, and if you can control your enemy and the youth, that's a big, big thing. And as China, we see, like I said, very smart. They're not looking at the next five years; they're looking at the next two hundred and fifty years. How are we going to control the United States? Take out the youth. But with that being said, uh, you know, will they go into Tai Taiwan? You don't know. dude. Biden is weak? Uh, we are preoccupied. Our economy shaky. We're uh, sending all these things to Ukraine. We might have a proxy war with Iran soon. Will they test us out? If they do, there is no doubt in my mind. I don't think we've identified Taiwan as part of mainland China since the revolution. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, depending uh, on what
2: answer uh, President Biden yeah, gives at the time. I don't know. Uh, this hour has flown by Ambassador Peter Ford, Alan Tonelson. Check Alan out at Reality Check Blog, uh, Joseph Ween. I hope you'll all come back soon. Thank you, gentlemen.
3: Thank you, Frank.
2: Until, Thank you. until, If you want to comment on anything we've discussed, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800 Until next time, uh, your influence counts. Be sure to use it.